Hi, this is Andrew Rimby. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today is our featured November book club author interview. So we welcome Stephen Rowley. Stephen Rowley is a freelance writer, newspaper columnist, and screenwriter. And he is the author of the novels Lily and the Octopus from 2016, the editor from 2019, and his most recent novel is The Gunkle, just published in 2021. The Gunkle is our book club choice. So I'm joined by my book club co-host, Mary DePippi. And in this episode, we get the ins and outs of Stephen's writing process, the inspiration for The Gunkle, a lot of spoilers that he discloses how he came to certain plot points. So we hope you all read the novel first so you're not getting any spoilers that you don't want. So please do uh, purchase Stephen's novel, The Gunkle. You'll see a link in our show notes. And there's also an excellent audiobook version that I listened to on Audible that Stephen gets into as well because he reads his audiobook. Okay, so here's a little teaser from the episode. And yes, in real life, I am the gunkle to five uh, kids who are sort of ages six to 13 now. Wow. And um, so, you know, when I was writing this, it was de definitely uh, um, drawing on some personal experience. Uh, certainly, you know, to the, you know, uh, to the extent that any of you are related to writers, I feel I feel for you because certainly we, um, you know, we can be sponges, us writers, and you know we can take things from your lives. So, uh, to the degree that I did that with any of my nieces and nephews, uh, I hope they forgive me. And in fact, the book is dedicated to them. So, um, so hopefully that is an olive branch. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited on this Friday that we're recording. First, I'm with uh, my guest co-host, Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello, everyone. We're so energized. We were just joking. It's like a performance because we are joined here uh, with Stephen Rowley, the author of The Gunkle. Thank you so much, Stephen, for making time and coming here. This has been much anticipated. Oh, yay. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I was joking that because of all of the main musical references, I have to put a line about it's today. 
<laughs> that's my favorite number in the whole musical. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You, I, it's, it's obvious for readers of the Gunkle that I have a slight fascination with Mame. Um, there are a few Easter eggs in the book. If you are, if you are a fan, hopefully there's some things you pick up. If you have, uh, if you're not a fan, you definitely don't need to be familiar uh, to enjoy the book. But uh, maybe you'll come to uh, either the the novel or one of the movie versions after the fact. I mean, Angela Lansbury is incredible. Uh, <laughs> but I do like the film version too. I'm trying not yeah, to throw yeah. any shade. Um, but are you zooming in with us from the infamous Palm Springs? From Palm Springs, California. Here I am where the heat has finally broken about 10 days ago. And it feels like we can venture out of our houses again. It's, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Maine. So I still feel like a, like a, you know, a New England boy at heart. So it's, it's, you know, I, it's the opposite of life that I'm used to. In August, I am, I am sort of run indoors when it's 120 degrees here, but uh, uh, definitely the opposite of how I grew up. But now that, now that falls here, I'm happy to be out and about rejoining the world. Yes. So mm -hmm. how did you first decide, and we're going to get right into the gunkle. So everyone <laughs> listening, we always say this about our book club interviews. Make sure you read the book or listen to Stephen read his book, which I'll get into because Mary usually reads the book and I always listen to the audiobook. So we have two different perspectives. Um, and we're going to get into a lot of spoilers. So um, right away, just how did you know, Stephen, that Patrick would be in the TV film industry? Yeah, so maybe, I, you know, I don't know if we should, should back up. I, I usually start at the very, very beginning, which is with the, the word gunkle. I assume, like your readers may be familiar, but if anyone is not, you know, a gunkle uh, has become popular slang in the past 10 years or so uh, for a gay uncle. And, and more so than that, just, just like Auntie Mame, it sort of has this uh, connotation of a larger than life personality. And certainly that's the case with this book. The Gunkle is about Patrick O'Hara, who is a retired television star, as you say, sort of living a reclusive life in Palm Springs um, when he is tasked with taking in his niece and nephew for the summer. Um, but it, yes, it was a very deliberate decision to make him uh, an actor and, uh, and someone who has had some success in television. In, in part, it was it was because I wanted to um, really focus on his relationship with the kids. And I didn't want him having to go to work or have a job or really have money be uh, an issue. And then, you know, it's kind of a, a fish out of water story for these kids who are coming from suburban Connecticut to his home in Palm Springs, California. So I thought, what, what, you know, what would be fun to play with that would make this world very different from the one where they're coming from? And certainly um, adding a dash of Hollywood um, to that mix uh, gave me a lot to play with as a writer. Yeah. Uh, so I know Mary, uh, she actually is a nanny or, you know, that's one of her side hustles when she's not writing. <laughs> yes. um, and I actually in high school spent a lot of time at a childcare for a gym. So, you know, she has the most immediate though connection to right. children every day. Um, you know, how did you decide on, as you're saying, you explained the terminology of the gunkle, like, is it from your own personal experience about being a gunkle or knowing other gunkles? How did that all come to be? 
Yeah. Um, and Mary, now I'm curious, like, how old are the kids? Like, you don't have to give anything away, but how old roughly are the kids? That, uh, oh, they're between the ages of three and eight. And I watched okay, three so, of them. So wow, there were a lot of <laughs> moments in this book where I was just like, oh, my God, is, is there a child around? Like, I right. feel like <laughs> this is something I've definitely been asked. This is definitely a situation I've been through with the three right, kids well, I watch. So, yeah, well, that's good. Hopefully, yeah, reading should be an escape. So the fact that it made you feel like you were on the job, I apologize for that. But uh, the fact that it rang true to the degree that it did, you know, I'm certainly grateful for that. And yes, in real life, I am the gunkel to five uh, kids who are sort of ages six to 13 now wow. and um so you know when i was writing this it was de definitely uh um drawing on some personal experience uh certainly you know to the you know uh to the extent that any of you are related to writers i feel i feel for you because certainly we um you know we can be sponges us writers and you know we can take things from your lives so uh to the degree that i did that with any of my nieces and nephews uh, i hope they forgive me and in fact the book is dedicated to them so um so hopefully that is an olive branch um but yes i did you know draw a little bit from from my own kids but the the inspiration my own kids my own nieces and nephews uh, i do not have children of my own um, but, uh, I, you know, I was definitely surprised by the depth of these relationships and, and when I became an uncle and, and how much these kids uh, came to mean to me. And indeed, the book was inspired by a week where um, my brother came to visit with his two boys who were ages three and six at the time. And uh, he was, uh, he's a, a trial attorney on the, on the East Coast. And, and after being here visiting me in Palm Springs for about 12 hours he was called into court to uh, on behalf of one of his clients and so he had to return immediately to the east coast and left me with the boys ages three and six for the week and certainly i had a lot of help more than more than patrick does in the book but it did make me feel like the understudy sort of sort of suddenly shoved into the lead role and i was uh suddenly having to to step up um to be there for these kids in a much bigger way than i was anticipating and, and at the end of that week i think my my it was my editor uh the great Sally Kim at Putnam, uh, who was sort of watching me flail a little bit on Instagram <laughs> and said, you know, <laughs> there might be something to write about here. So uh, yeah, that's it. You know, in that moment, a book was born. Yeah, I mean, she definitely was right about it. I mean, like you said, I mean, not necessarily to put me in the like, oh my gosh, am I at work? Like in a bad way, but it was it, like you said, it just, it rings so true for anyone who has been in that situation where they're not, the parent, but someone who is in charge of the well-being and safety and discipline of a child that is not biologically yours. So, you know, again, like I said, it, it just rang so true. And I was just like, wow, like I understand exactly what Patrick is going through. <laughs> and yeah, I'm sure your qualifications and resume are put, make you much more uh, suited for this type of work where Patrick is a little bit in the deep end, uh, at least at the start of this novel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just having too many flashbacks with all the tantrum moments in the gunkle of when I was babysitting for the whole day uh, at the Jersey Shore. Mary and I are actually almost from the same town, about 10 oh, minutes wow. apart in South Jersey. But now I live on Long Island. She's still in Jersey. Um, and I miss <laughs> it a lot. But um, I was watching 
one of the children from the gym, the parents asked if I would come to their shore house for the whole day. So mm -hmm. I babysat for the whole day. And just that experience, especially when um, the child kept asking for more and more fudge samples. And I said, no, <laughs> we need to get pizza and you can't keep eating fudge. Yeah. And then we have started, to have new some nutritious yeah. food in you, like pizza. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like pizza. <laughs> yeah, and then the next course will be funnel cake. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when I just, you know, put a boundary, and then he started crying. I said, "Okay, it'll be okay. Everything will <laughs> work out." But you really do become the center of attention with everyone around you. Um, and I thought that um, you did such a wonderful job having Patrick in all of these different scenarios, whether it be when they went out to restaurants um, and just testing what was he going to do in every situation. So I'm kind of curious, did you have a drawing board where you knew all the different encounters where Patrick would be taking Maisie and Graham? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's sort of, you know, I, as, a, as an artist, I, you know, as a writer, I, um, I sort of usually know my jumping off point and I usually know where I'm going. And then it's that middle part where I'm a bit of a, um, a pantser, you know, they call it sometimes, you know, flying oh, yes. by the seat of your pants or, you know, I subscribe more to the sort of headlight version of, of writing and like imagine a car at night and you can sort of see as far as the headlights illuminate, but you really don't know what's beyond that. And that's a little bit how I feel uh, when I'm writing. But, um, you know, it is one of the, the greatest difference between parenting and being, say, an uncle is um, that you get to give the kids back at the end of the day. And, and it's a it's a much, uh, much different uh, endeavor when you're when you have custody sort of for a long stretch of time, for instance, in your case, Andrew, a full day or in Patrick's case. Uh, you know, 90 days, um, which he has these kids. And so um, it was fun to imagine like what situations would I put Patrick in that would make him equally uncomfortable um, with the kids. But a lot of that is, is me exploring um, a little bit too, because I am very aware uh, as a writer, not, not having children of my own, no matter how you feel about having kids, you know, it's inarguably one of life's great emotional experiences. And, and, you know, I'm aware that I don't have that to draw on. And so this was a really fun project for me to sort of imagine, you know, what, what do I have to say on the subject of raising kids? What, do, what would I be like uh, as a caregiver? And it was fun to sort of explore some of that through Patrick. And not only did you do that as like, not only just a caregiver, but it's a caregiver under very tragic and dark circumstances, which most people, again, I mean, I feel like most parents wouldn't know how to fully navigate this territory of having experienced such an extreme loss and the amount or the immense grief that comes with that. So with Patrick having literally no experience with raising children is then thrown into this situation where, you know, he's really in a tough spot of having to explain and help these children through the loss of their mother and his best friend so but again you're the novel is also hilarious so how did you <laughs> balance that the moments of grief and humor how was that or what was that process like for yeah, you yeah I think that that was the greatest challenge in writing a project like this I do think it's a very funny book it's hopefully a very funny book and yet I 
hope it also doesn't pull any punches when it comes to exploring grieving, particularly, you know, grief in, in children. Um, and that was that was hard to do. But these were the these were the uh, sort of projects that I've always been drawn to. I, I remember watching the, the movie Terms of Endearment, the the Larry McMurtry novel is actually very different, but the movie, you know, everyone remembers it as this movie where Deborah Winger says goodbye to her kids and it's so emotional and we cry and yes, but it's also one of the funniest films uh, ever made. And so, you know, finding that, that humor, which is our salvation so often in, in dark times, in, you know, you know, dealing, coping with grief, you know, so, so often it's humor that helps us light the way. And so, um, you know, as a writer, that's a real balancing act because, you know, sometimes my inclination would be to go one joke too far and it really then throws the balance off of that scene. Or conversely, you know, you can go too long without the, the relief of a joke, without, without the, being able to laugh and, and let some of the air out of the, of these, as you say, the, you know, sort of dark experiences, you know, the kids have lost their mom. Um, for Patrick, I think, um, you know, he doesn't really know how to talk to these kids. And so he, he talks to them like little adults, which horrifies, um, you know, so many. But, you know, for kids who are going through something so scary and, and so sad, you know, I don't th I think they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be treated with kid gloves. So what looks like is going to make Patrick a disaster at the outset is actually, um, I think, his greatest strength in helping them navigate uh this experience and and as a character he's dealt with loss himself you know he's someone who's been grieving um for a long time and that's a, the the interesting thing about grief it's not necessarily a temporary thing it can become such a part of the fabric of of who we are we learn to live with it uh more than cure it and so um you know but he hasn't he's not a perfect character patrick he hasn't uh i think his grief journey is one that i think he very much does not want to become the kids um experience with grief so he realizes he's got to illustrate a better way and that means digging deep within himself and 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 you know finding a way to heal yeah and even Right, that moment, and I'm not going to reveal it all, even though we are <laughs> hoping everyone right, has... We're dancing around spoilers. We're dancing yeah. around spoilers, <laughs> but I will say the earthquake scene, mm -hmm. um, the way that Patrick's heart going out towards Grand, but also how he's able to make light of the Golden Globe. It's like, it's that type yeah. of back and forth where I know when I got to that point, I messaged Mary and said... Oh my goodness. <laughs> Have you gotten to this yet? This is really, um, you know, Patrick coming full force with his emotions yeah. and how much yeah. he cares about both children. And, um, but time and time again, I mean, I was so impressed with just how you're able to mesh that grief and humor, almost like a quilt. <laughs> Like it just goes back and forth. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much. I mean, that means so much to me because I do, you know, that that's how I view life. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's certainly something I look for in books and, uh, you know, and art. Um, that, that's always what, what I respond to. But, uh, you know, thinking at the outset, when I when I sat down to write this book, I was probably imagining as a, as a much lighter uh, outright you know, comedic novel. And, um, you know, as, as happens sometimes, uh, real life 
seeps in, and that certainly happened a couple months into the writing uh, process. I lost one of my best friends from colleges to breast cancer, and she left behind a, a six-year-old son. And that really got me thinking much more seriously about uh, about grief and, and, as I said, uh, grief in children. Um, you know, Mame, uh, to go back to her for a moment, sent her her ward, her nephew, off to, to boarding school, and that sort of sidestepped the whole issue of grief. And I, you know, suddenly very much did not want to do that. So it meant writing a comedy while facing some very heady things, um, you know, directly. Yeah, well, and something that you and our last book club interview, PJ Vernon with Bathhouse, mm have is, I was saying to Mary, have I chosen every book to have Oscar <laughs> Wilde referenced? Because yeah. it's like Oscar Wilde is lurking behind all of these books. And again, I mean, I love that you begin with Oscar Wilde with the satire and yeah. the way that he looks darkness in the face all through humor. Um, so, I mean, I'm assuming is Oscar Wilde one of your great literary mentors, Stephen? <laughs> well, certainly, yeah. Uh, he, you know, and he certainly has a way with a quip, which is um, something I, you know, I always admire. It's, uh, it's tough being a comedic writer sometimes, you know, particularly writing novels. Uh, it's a terrible return on investment for comedy because I could be sitting there typing away thinking, oh, this is a great line. And then realizing because it takes, you know, a year plus to write a book and then publishing is a long lead industry that it could be, you know, two, three years before anybody reads it. And oh, by the way, I won't even be in the room when, you know, if they do laugh. So it's like, I'll never know. I'm just sending these sort of, uh, you know, jokes out into the into the wild and and we'll see what happens. So, you know, I, I need to take up a different comedic art form if I want, if I actually want to hear laughter back. But, you know, I, you know, you have faith in someone like, like Oscar Wilde who, who uh, is so clever in the way he explores things. And, those sort of insights and quips endure. And um, certainly you hope a book has a, a book has a long shelf life. You don't want it to burn bright and, and disappear after a few months. And um, so that, you know, it also forces you to craft comedy around universal uh, topics. You know, you don't want anything too, too topical, too anything that feels like a Tonight Show monologue, you know, by the time it gets to readers or, or even if readers pick up the book 10 years from now, you don't want it to feel dated. So that means a lot of this comedy uh, comes from character, some truth, you know, real truth in that character and comes from a very natural place. And I think that's what, what endures and certainly what Oscar Wilde did. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's true. I didn't even realize. <laughs> See, this is where when writers interview writers, it's just surprise <laughs> after surprise because... You're right. There is no referential knowledge about politics or very specific historical um, figures in the current moment. Okay. Yeah. Well, Patrick certainly has lots of pop cultural references, um, but even for them, it's a, it's they're all kind of a day. I feel like I sort of purposefully made them dated. Then they're kind of timeless, uh, mm. as opposed to making them too topical. But that's uh, you know I think not. Uh, untrue to the character either. Certainly, you know, I know plenty of gay men who all, we sort of idolize older movies and, uh, you know, older Broadway shows and, and whatnot, pull, a, pull a, our, a lot of our references from the classics. So it kind of goes hand in hand with who Patrick is. Yeah. And um, I know you talked about your novel in terms of its genre as comedic. Um, and I was kind of curious 
if you see that your novel does have this hybrid form, which could kind of make it into young adult, but also on the adult novel um, seesaw, so to speak, that like I could see that your novel could really be read and received well by high schoolers or, you know, older uh, young adults. Like, were you intentional about maybe having that type of back and forth with how it would be categorized? Uh, I don't think so. I, I always envisioned it as an adult novel, but when you, when you put kids into a story or feature them, you know, prominently, there's always room for expanding your audience a little bit. Um, and I, you know, I've certainly, you know, hoped to have done that. And certainly the Gunkle has attracted new readers for me that may not have particularly read a book with an LGBTQ plus lead uh, before. And that's always very rewarding to me. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, you know, starting at like picturing as a comedic novel, I've written, this is my third novel. I think they're all very funny, but somehow they're also all tear jerkers. And I don't, I don't quite know how that happened. Uh, but you know, I, I walk a fine line, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it's your aesthetic. Right? <laughs> I mean, maybe you're too close to the work, yeah. right? But I see you're just, even before I met you, I knew that you had a comedic side, but also facing reality head on. Right. Um, yeah, I think I'm funny, but yeah, you're right. That, but that, I, you know, I really do think that humor comes from, from looking at very real world things uh, directly and not, not trying to avoid them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found you hilarious. I mean, still one of my favorite lines <laughs> from this book is when they're at brunch for the first time and Patrick and Maisie or yeah, she says what his name, how his real age. And he's just like, what are you the DMV? Like keep your voice down. <laughs> like I was cracking yeah. up because again, that is something because kids don't understand age necessarily. And even though she knows how old he is, she doesn't understand how that number can affect someone. Yeah. So like even examples where like I've asked the kids, how old do you think I am? And like to hear their answers, I am like, oh, good Lord, I need to put more night cream on. Like, <laughs> they think I am. <laughs> yeah, but that like but also the numbers have no meanings because like, I remember being a kid and thinking, you know, like 30 was ancient. So, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so it's all it's all relative when you're that young. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Mary and I are almost 30 and I keep saying, wait, wait, no, 30 is very young. You know, it'll be 60. 30 is very young. I know, but right, it's all um, perspective of where you are in life. Mm -hmm. um, For sure. But I am curious, following up with Mary's question, especially, right, that DMV moment, um, even just with uh, Clara's relationship with Patrick, um, and the grief, right? Maybe grief. Would you say she's going through grief, Stephen? Oh, sure. Yeah. She's going through her own grief. Um, so Patrick's, this is Patrick's sister, Clara, who doesn't necessarily think the kids should be with him. And in fact, probably thinks they should have been with her, um, this whole time. She has a legitimate point of view. She's going through, uh, some things in her own life, but she also, feels like, you know, and, and legitimately she has been there, I think uh, much more so than Patrick has over the course of their mother's illness. She's put in time, they're more familiar with her. So it's sort of out of left field that they end up with Patrick, that their father decides to place them with Patrick uh, as he enters 
rehab, which is the sort of impetus for, for them go going to visit Patrick. And so, yeah, I understand. Like she is someone who A, is, is going through her own grief, but B, uh, also is probably someone who's been shoved aside a lot. Like, what does that feel like to be, to be related to someone very famous, um, you know, as Patrick is? What does it feel like to, when people learn that you are related to someone and all they want to know about is that someone and not really interested in you. And now here you are where you know you could do some good uh, being brushed aside again. You know, like I really do feel for Clara. I don't like having someone who's an outright villain per mm -hmm. se. Yes, you need conflict in any good novel and, and there's a way to do that, but also give um, Clara a really legitimate point of view, I think. And um, I, that's much more interesting to me. And hopefully it makes her a much more resonant character. Yeah. I agree. I mean, for me, I because I wanted to hate her so much, like when she shows up unannounced and it's just like, what is going on? Like she has no context of what is yeah. happening. Clearly, the kids are OK. This is a one time thing. And then when she petitions for temporary custody of it, I was just like, oh, no. But that also <laughs> reminded me of the movie Raising Helen, which mm -hmm. kind of also felt a little bit towards the end when Greg explains that this was also Sarah's decision to place them with Patrick. Um, for those of you who don't know Raising Helen, um, in that movie, it's a very similar situation. There's a sibling who passes away. The children are left with one sibling and the, the other surviving sibling thinks that they should be with them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, when Greg admits that, you know, him and Sarah put this plan together before she passed, I really felt like that was that moment of it's not that Clara's not good enough. It's not that she wouldn't do a good job. It's comes down to who is going to help best get these kids through this while also, you know, Patrick has more memories of of Sarah. So I thought that was also something very interesting and also a really different experience. Cause I don't think most kids that age would hear about how, you know, their mom and their uncle got arrested or like had to be with the police, you know, yeah. and that was the first time that they met. So, yeah. Well, yeah. A couple things there. One is like, yeah, who will do best by the children, but who could be helped the most uh, by by the children being with them. And certainly this book leads to a season of healing for all three, you know, Patrick included. Um, and uh, as you say, I think, I think, you know, as kids, you know, even, even as adult children, sometimes we tend to picture our parents as, as having been born on the same day that we were, you know, as sort of as fully functional adults and that they, and, you know, to recognize that they have childhoods of their own and traumas and heartbreaks and, you know, a whole life lived sometimes before before they have children is very eye-opening. And so, you know, here you have these two kids who are not gonna have future memories of their mother, but Patrick has access to all these sort of past memories that can help keep her alive in their minds and 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 helping them learn and discover new things about their mom. And, and yeah, you can't discount the importance of that in, uh, in uh, you know, helping them deal with this very shocking moment in time. Yeah, and you do a really interesting type of subversion of the uh, fairy tale, right? Where there's always the orphan or usually it's the mother who's dead um, for reasons we never know. Thanks, um, Disney. Disney did yeah, that to exactly. all of us. Disney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Disney really <laughs> likes that trope. Um, yeah. 
Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And you really do a, I think this is a queer fairy tale in a way, the Gunkel. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree hundred percent. And it was, you know, it's, it's quite an honor to do that. You know, obviously like I, if you read the book, I think you can tell that I've had a long fascination with this sort of magical caregiver genre, whether, you know, it be Auntie Mame or, or Mary Poppins or even, you know, Maria from the Sound of Music. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, to create a queer entry in that, um, is, is, you know, you know, I, I take that responsibility very seriously. And to the extent that, you know, uh, um, uh, Julie Andrews had, you know, had music in the, in the sound of music, Maria had music in the sound of music and Mary Poppins had actual magic, you know, mm -hmm. sort of Patrick's magic as it were is his lived experience as a, as a gay man. So his pop cultural references, his politics, his point of view, his worldview, his, his empathy you know, all stems from his experience as a, as a gay person. And so um, that was really special to do that. And now, you know, I feel very lucky because the, the, the book is, is in development as, as a, as a feature film and the idea of there being, you know, a mainstream theatrical family film yes. with a queer lead feels um, while it shouldn't be feels kind of revolutionary. And I'm very, you know, honored to be part of that process, bringing it to the screen as well. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. Um, I was also thinking yeah. like, oh man, like if this is a movie, like I can't wait to go see it. Like this Yay. would be a great film. Oh, wonderful. I mean, do we know more than that about who's cast or is that still? No one is cast yet, but I'm, uh, I'm always open to hear people's ideas. So certainly, yeah, and I've heard a lot of, a lot of great ideas. Um, I, I do think it's very important uh, for this role. Uh, in particular for Patrick, in particular, that he be played by um, an out queer person. So um, with that in mind, I'm open to all casting. Well, I would say there are it's some It's not people... my decision entirely, no, but I... I, love hear... I love hearing them. I mean, I would say there are some in the boys in the band too. I'm already mm -hmm. yeah. thinking about, but The entire again... cast, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. entire cast, yeah. Maybe Patrick could just be played by a different person in each moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because... I was listening to you. So I've heard your cadences. I feel like I know Steven as a performer mm -hmm. in the intimate audio experience. Um, maybe you could play Patrick Steven. Uh, well, you know, I always say like, uh, you know, I have, I, I guess I have a fine voice for recording. I'm, I'm, I'm good to write books, but, but, uh, you know, I did imagine Patrick is a sort of younger, handsomer version of myself. So I it's better for me to stay behind the scenes probably. Uh, but recording the audiobook was a very interesting experience. It was my first time. Um, Michael Urie, act, wonderful actor, has recorded my previous 
uh, audiobooks. And I just felt I wanted to take a stab with this one because, you know, as you say, the cadences and everything, it's a very interesting experience when you write a book and it's, you know, it's yours and yours alone for a very long time before it's published and released. And so you learn to hear it in a very specific way in your head. Um, and so, you know, Michael, who I think is wonderful, is a really incredible actor, yeah. you know, interprets the text. By the way, he should, that's his job. But sometimes when he goes up where my head, I go down, you know, it's jarring for me. So I thought, for once, I'm going to, um, for better or for worse, lay down a record of what one of my books sounds like to me. And um, and uh, so for anyone who is interested, uh, here you have it with the Gunkel. But I had to audition. I had to audition for the publisher. I don't think they necessarily thought it was a good idea. And so I sort oh of had to prove goodness. myself. Well, I love Michael Yuri. I saw him in the Torch Song trilogy on oh, Broadway. So did I, yeah. Yeah, so good. I mean, I go back with him to his ugly Betty days yeah. Um, when I was, well, in middle school, but we don't have to talk. Yeah. About <laughs> yeah, please. Um, You're going to make me cry. Oh no. But uh, did, I was just curious as you were um, reading your audiobook. I'm assuming though you had read out the children's dialogue as you were writing. Like, did you actually say their dialogue out loud? I will say this. I did not really say ever say anything out loud before and going through the experience of recording this it will forever be part of my process from here forward is reading my work out loud i don't know that i will be the audiobook narrator for the next book i don't know if it will be the right fit um uh but reading my work out loud will forever be part of my writing process because you learn so much you learn so much and there were times when the performer in me was really cursing the writer in me for coming up with some of this stuff because you know here I, I you know I think I'm so clever as a writer I'll give Grant a lisp and that way I don't have to tag every piece of dialogue I don't have to say he said she said Grant said Maisie said it'll be clear which child is talking because one of them has this slight uh, impediment but you know when it came time to perform that uh, you know that's a whole other that's a whole other story I'm like oh god what have I done um, but you know the key to performing it is is was similar to the key to writing it, and and you want to do it with a, a light touch, I think, and and certainly you know I didn't want to um, hit it too hard on the page, uh, because I I didn't want to slow the reader down in any way. You want to thread it through, you want to suggest it a little bit, just to give the reader you know a hint of that voice, and then let them do the work. Whereas you know I didn't need them to hit a, a you know garbled consonants in every in every line finger well what is this kid trying to say? And that was the key to performing it too, hopefully. So you go with a lighter touch and, and um, hopefully uh, it brings the character to, to life just enough. Now we've talked about the kids a lot, um, which obviously they're a huge part of this novel. I'm also curious about the character of Emery. What was mm -hmm. that like creating him? Was the age difference between him and Patrick intentional? Um, you know, things like that, like his character, I just think is so interesting. And he just comes out of nowhere and is was not at all what I expected. I, I thought he was just gonna like he was just there for a hookup. And that was that yeah. was it. But the moment when you know, Patrick's like, when they're in bed together, and the kids find them. And they're like, you didn't get the invitation to the sleepover. <laughs> and like how he jumps up and makes the popcorn and everything like, that for me, I was like, oh, that's really unexpected. I like this. Where is this going? So was there a specific relationship that you had that inspired that? Or again, just what uh, the process not, was like? Not so much um, 
a relationship that I had, but yeah, I didn't, you know, Emery was dreamy. So Emery, Emery was a, a, a younger love interest uh, for Patrick that, as you say, sort of shows up out of nowhere and then kind of sticks around. And I didn't expect him to stick around uh, quite honestly, but I enjoyed writing him and having him be younger was definitely intentional because Patrick is learning so much from the kids. So to have this be a little May to December kind of thing, you know, that, that Emery also is younger and that, and that it's this sort of youthful energy that is, that is feeding Patrick and sort of bringing him, help bringing him back to life. Um, that was definitely intentional, but that's, that's, as I say, you know, what, that's a perfect example of where I say, you know, I don't see beyond the headlights. I like that. I like there to be room to surprise myself. Some writers hate that. They are um, very deliberate outliners. They know the whole story before they sit down to write even a single word. And to me, that feels like assembling something in a factory a little bit. No, not, it's not a knock to others' creative processes at all. But for me, putting myself in the chair, like getting there, sitting down to do the work, is always the biggest part of the challenge. So if I feel like when I show up to work in the morning, if I don't know entirely what's going to happen, if I could surprise myself, like that makes it more fun to me to uh, to sit down and yeah, sometimes it sends you in some wrong directions and you have to backtrack a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, Emery is a good example of that. Whereas, whereas once I brought him to life, I wanted, I just wanted a little bit more of him. And so hmm. he kept returning. Well, and does that lessen your writer's block in a way to um, not be so focused on the outline? Like, cause I just realized <laughs> I'm coming from the dissertation experience mm -hmm. of what I'm working on right now with Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde. But um, like I have this huge outline, but to me, it's just sitting in front of my computer and surprising myself with my paragraphs. And yeah. that's what's most exciting. I mean, I feel that my writer's block gets worse when I look at my outline and say, wait, how does A connect to B connect to C? Right. Yeah. And then sometimes you're looking at it and it's like, yeah, it's, a, it's like a, almost a mathematical equation. Whereas this, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it helped, you know, I certainly came up with moments of writer's block uh, with this. I was coming off of writing my previous novels called The Editor, which is about a young uh, gay man in early 1990s New York who forms an unexpected friendship with Jacqueline Onassis while she was a book editor at Doubleday, which she really had this incredible 15 year career after her second husband died and edited more than 100 books and a really fascinating time in her life and we just you know it's not even one of the top five things we remember about her and yet you know her as a, as a working woman uh is was really fascinating to me but but so my point is that the, that's a book that required a lot of research i had so much research when you're writing a you know a real life historical figure into fiction um and so i always thought oh that was good um, for me, because I, it, when I did get stuck, I always had research to and, the, and I could usually find something in the research that would inspire what should come next. But sometimes it is hard when you're creating this world out of, out of whole cloth, um, and you're responsible for every character and what they say and what they think and what they're going to do. Um, that can be overwhelming. Now, listen, I, not the, the degree of, uh, difficulty that I'm attempting here as a gay man who's actually an uncle who does live in Palm Springs is not the same as say a fantasy writer or someone who truly is creating whole worlds. Uh, but still, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to rely on yourself and your imagination for. And some wow, days it comes easier than others.
Yeah, I mean, so even though Palm there. Springs is a very real place, I, I feel like it is also just as much as a character in this, just as Maisie, Grant, and Patrick are. Um, yeah. You know, with the heat and everything. And or the then, relentless, like, cheerful mm-hmm. sunshine that Palm Springs has, you know, 350 <laughs> days of the year. And when you're trying to grieve, you know, having it be that bright and that sunny all the time, you just want a rainy day where you stay inside and curl up on the couch. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was definitely deliberate. And, and, you know, strangely, I did, I actually did not live in, in Palm Springs when I, when I wrote the book and I have lived here since. Um, but I, but I've, you know, had visited lots. And, uh, so it was was definitely something I would think of in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah. So not, not too, too far, but, you know, Palm Springs is also a city that many more people associate with retirement than with raising children. Mm -hmm. So the fact of having Mm -hmm. kids there again, it was that sort of deliberately sort of placing them in a, a, you know, as fish out of water in this, in this new place, yeah. you know, or, and then they get to see things like in the hippieish California desert, they get, you know, there's a, there's a gay thruple, a polyamorous relationship next door who um, they were completely fun to write and, you know, have been some, some readers favorite characters and that, that always, you know, tickles me. I'm, I'm so glad that they have been as well received as I intended. Oh yeah, Jed is going to be exciting in the film. I mean, <laughs> we to, I loved them. That's who I'm curious yeah. to see who they all cast. Yeah, um, but they each brought something yeah. different to the table. Something different, yeah. for Patrick, to learn from. I think even for the kids to learn from. Um, I mean, they, there's a lot of things I feel like these kids have learned by spending the summer with Patrick that they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, the fact that Maisie doesn't want to wear really girly clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was just so beautifully handled by Patrick and how, you know, his rules and like how he shows her his font closet and everything that's in there. Like, I just it was so sweet and just so beautiful. And in that moment, as he's explaining, though, I realized not many children get that support, which is that perspective. Yeah. And I think like, you know, this again, this is a, a a surprise strength of Patrick's is just not to make a big deal out of it. Um, you know, and I don't know, people have asked me in interviews, do I think, you know, Maisie will grow up to be gay or, you know, hmm. is Maisie, you know, trans, is she, and, and so she could be a tomboy. She could be just uncomfortable with her body in any given moment. The key is not to freak out, not to try to hold on tighter to some certain image of what children should be, but it is to let them be who they are and it will all sort itself out over time if you're just there to love and support them um and so uh yeah that's a, another another place where patrick has some some sort of hidden strengths i think yeah well and i'm so happy to know you are um which makes sense such a cultivated fan of the genre with um caregivers and i yeah. know films that i kept thinking of um were harriet the spy matilda mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I really love these films where there is that alternative family, like Miss Honey. I just love that ending of the film um, where they're dancing around. Um, but, you know, alternative. Yeah, family- well, that's that's a huge part of the queer experience also yeah. is found family, you know, like, you know, the history of, you know, of um, gay people sometimes is that there is sometimes a sad history where they're not accepted by their by their birth families or, uh, you know, and they go and they leave and they go to the you know big cities and they cultivate 
these sort of new families. Um, you know, it's it's such a rich part of queer history. And yes, Patrick is actually blood related to these kids. He's their uncle, but they are a found family in a, in a way. And so it's nice to honor that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of mm -hmm. curious, did you have those types of New York City experiences? Um, I'm always curious, like how many people have that New York City interaction? Just because I do find so many writers New York City can never hide away from them. Yeah, I, I lived in New York City uh, for a while. My mistake was I went to college in Boston and I, I moved immediately to LA afterwards. And I was in, in Los Angeles for four years and then just got a bug up my ass. I'm, I need to try New York. And so I went to New York. And I, I think if I had gone, you know, a kid from Maine to school in Boston to New York, that that's a natural progression. But somehow Maine, Boston, LA, New York, like LA made me soft. In the inter in the intervening years, so I came to New York and I was like, "Oh my God, it's really hard. It's really hard." Uh, but I had a, a great job that allowed me to see lots of theater, and uh, you know, and to to this day, I um, you know, I love visiting New York. I love having a job, you know, where my publisher's in New York, and and it gives me a reason to visit. And um, I cried at everyone's Instagram stories of going back to Broadway. You know, a few weeks ago, I, I, I live performance is something I miss so much. And, uh, and I can't wait to be back in New York. And is that why you had Patrick? Oh, I'm so sorry. I was gonna say, is that why you That's had Patrick choose? Well, yeah, here's the like an ultimate spoiler. We won't give this away, but I will say, yeah, I was, we gave a lot of thought to what does it mean to sort of to go, you know, Patrick is considering going back to work. So do you go back? Is it really a step back to doing what you did first or, or is he sort of repositioning himself for um, new artistic experiences and artistic expression? And what does it feel like? Yes, you're going back to something you did before, but how can you do it in a, in a way that feels like a step forward? Um, so yeah, that was absolutely deliberate. Yeah. Well, when you go back to Manhattan, um, if you want to see Plaza Suite with me, now that's just such a very specific, but <laughs> yes, you know, Sarah Jessica, Park. The Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. Right yes. Now. Yes. I can't wait for that play. Well, um, um, absolutely. Yeah. One, one review from, um, I think it was in book list. I can't, I can't remember. One review for the Gunkel said like, and it, it had enough quips to, or like a, comedic lines that would make Neil Simon jealous. And to me, that was like, I was like, I could just die right now that I'll just kind of frame this review. And, uh, and that's the, you know, this will be the pinnacle of my career. Yeah, well, and little Edie <laughs> would be very proud of you from great Gardens, Yes. which now yeah. makes sense why everyone should and I'm going to read the editor. Um, because I am um, I made sure that I found the Grey Gardens house, which isn't that far mm -hmm. from me and took pictures. Mm -hmm. um, and I just love how Maisie masters Patrick's <laughs> quips and cultural illusions so much that she finally starts to use that language with her father. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that was truly a joy. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, people have asked me if there will be a sequel. I don't know. I'm not breaking any news today. I honestly don't <laughs> know. But I have imagined if I ever revisit these characters, and I love these characters, uh, that, um, you know, seeing these kids as teenagers, you know, perhaps when they're not so charmed by Patrick or they have their own quips uh, or, you know, and certainly agency to push back against some of his charms and they don't fall for him quite as easily, that that would, that yeah. would be very interesting. But yeah, it would be an honor to share the editor with you. That's another joy of having a popular book out now is that readers going back and discovering your, your previous books is, you know, is truly an honor and a joy. Yeah. And we should mention too, Stephen's um, 
infamous Lily and the Octopus, uh, <laughs> meaning infamous that it is so popular and um, another book that I need to put on my list. Yeah, well, yeah. So certainly famous. If it's infamous, it's because uh, people, I think people are afraid of it a little bit because that's another tearjerker. I think it's very funny also, but um, a lot of people have cried and I know that people are afraid of that sometimes that, um, you know, that uh, they don't want, they don't want to, I don't want to read that because I'm going to cry. And to me, you know, it's always such a lovely release. If, if, you know, you respond to a, a piece of art in a way that moves you to a physical reaction, you know, in that way, like tears or something, I always, I always think that's a good thing. That's not something to shy away from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, and I promise happy ending for those who are too scared. I there is a happy ending. No, okay. It's not a great business model and taking people to the edge of a cliff and just <laughs> pushing them off. I promise to lead you back from the cliff before it's over. Yeah, well, and, you know, I'm not going to say exactly what show Patrick's in at the end, but again, another favorite? Enough, very <laughs> another very meta play that you choose. Yeah, yeah. it seems purposefully. Um, and I loved watching that film version. Um, and I'm also wondering, huh, who's to say the Gunkle wouldn't make a really good play or even musical? Right. I think, mm -hmm. I think, you know, and we live in a world now where so many things go from movies to, to musical. Now, sadly, like, you know, here's a little inside baseball for Hollywood business. Now you cannot sell the film rights anymore without also turning over stage rights because of companies like Disney who have had such, you know, have, have made, you know, such hay out of, out of um, theatrical versions of, of many of their classic films. And oh, you think of a, a you think of a, a, a property like Hairspray, which was, you know, a John Waters film. Yeah and then uh, a Broadway musical, and then a movie musical, and then a live uh, live TV adaptation of that music. You know, it's like some of these things go on and on and on. So it would be very exciting, I think. Yeah, and usually right now the trajectory, I'm not a specialist in Broadway producing, but I know enough of the business that usually it goes from the movie to the musical just because of right how much funding has to go behind a musical and... Oh, for sure. We don't have yeah. to go through all that because it's it's a lot of yeah, a lot of ins and outs. But um, yeah. I'm so excited, especially to know that the Gunkle is coming out maybe in two years. Stephen, fingers fingers crossed. We'll see. Oh. The, these okay. uh, these things uh, you know sometimes have their own uh, circuitous route to the screen, but uh, hopefully this will find a a clear path and in a relatively short amount of time. Okay, we're gonna manifest it. Okay, good. It's yeah, gonna happen. Okay, so I know we just have a few more questions and mm -hmm. this has just been really exciting. Um, so, I mean, I wanna just ask how much of you is in Patrick, which you've kind of answered, but like if you had to choose a character in your novel, you know, which one do you personally relate to the most? Yeah, well, um, you know, there's no denying that Lily and the Octopus was a, was a deeply autobiographical story. So in some ways, they're the most connections. But, you know, I so, sort of wrote that starting almost 10 years ago. So I feel, that feels like a good record of who I was. Patrick feels like um, a better representation of who I am today. He's sadder than I am. Um, he's been through some stuff, but uh, certainly his sense of humor and uh and whatnot. I, I think it's, I, I think it's a pretty close representation to me. Yeah. 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 And also just because I am obsessed with the housewives, no, no, this is such a tangent, <laughs> but I am curious 
Like there is such a, so much of that performance and Patrick having the soap opera connection and um, right. These layers of um, performativity with everything Mm -hmm. that, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think eventually that veneer starts to break down as you um, dig in to the Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's Um, one who's always performing to keep people from seeing himself truly. Yeah. And that does break down over the, over the course of the novel. Yeah. And I think just, when I first knew we were going to be set in Palm Springs, I was just thinking the housewives because um, they had a huge scene in Palm Springs. So uh, yeah. you don't need to tell me if you've seen the housewives or not. I've, I, well, I know I'm, I will be, I've never seen a single episode of any housewives. It's just, oh, okay. But um, yeah. I do. Do you think that the Gunkel would, like Mary said, Palm Springs becomes, what Manhattan becomes to so many novels. Oh, sure, um, sure. Yeah, like, certainly Manhattan to Maine. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It is It is a character. I think it's always a deliberate choice where to set a book and it should it should have something to offer the story. Um, indeed, these shouldn't be random um, choices that, that places are rich with meaning. And um, certainly when you can marry that to a story and so that the sort of working in tandem that, that you get uh, even greater depth. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the Gunkle would just play out very differently if the children were residing in New Jersey or like right. something so far away from the film industry um, that it just makes so much sense why Palm Springs becomes, you know, and Palm Springs isn't Los Angeles. Like right. it's, yeah, that's it's two hour drive. It's own thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And, you know, Patrick's a character who's in hiding and that is, uh, you know, there's sort of a rich history of Hollywood going there, going to Palm Springs to get away. And certainly, you know, Patrick is trying to get away or trying to be away um, at the beginning of this novel. So, um, yeah, it made sense. Yeah. Do you hope that this, novel opens eyes of people who may be bigoted against the LGBTQ LGBTQ community um, or, you know, definitely unsure of, obviously, that has been politicized. Um, I always go into a book reading, you know, this is the life, this is the world of this particular person, any other factors really about them. It you know it doesn't matter to me, but obviously for some people, it does. Um, do you think that for you know it would help some people that to like? Oh, understand I hope so. And- I hope so. You know, we have um, gained an incredible amount. Uh, you know, of rights. Things have gotten better for queer people in um, certainly in the thirty years since I've come out, and to the extent that that we have accomplished these things is, is in part because we have told our stories. I think there's real power um, in that and, and showing our humanity. It's hard to deny someone their humanity when you have walked you know, a bit in their shoes and that's what great storytelling can do. There are beautiful LGBTQ plus families now raising children and they are all heroes to me. And mm-hmm. so um, to the extent that someone could look at a book like this and realize like not only are, okay, you know, these children not being harmed, but that gay people have real things to offer uh, 
children and child rearing and and beautiful perspectives um, that can strengthen you know these children's upbringings. Uh, I think you know I. I hope the book is eye-opening in that way um, to, to some people, even people who are on, sort of don't think about it that often think like, yeah, yeah I, I accept gay people and, and but don't think about how beautiful these families can be that, um, that the book is eye-opening in that way. Yeah, well, you definitely create such a nuanced portrayal of what you say, the chosen family and, you know, a type of queer relationship, relationality uh, between Patrick and the children. But you've even... I mean, I'm openly gay since as a freshman in high school, I'm now 29. Um, and I kept thinking, oh, okay, maybe I do want to have children. <laughs> <laughs> like, should I really be that gay single father that I keep wanting to be? So <laughs> I'm curious, like all the time you spent with your creative vision, your ideas and your novel, um, do you want to have children, Stephen? No, no, that ship has sailed. I'm too old. I get tired. I don't do anything. I get tired. I can't imagine <laughs> raising kids. I get married earlier this year, so I get the question a lot because it seems like a natural question to ask someone after after they get married. Uh, but no, I will uh, continue to have dogs for the rest of uh, my life, I think, and, and be very happy with that. But yeah. and be the gunkle. My nieces and nephews. Yes. Yeah, I will be the I will happily be the gunkle. Uh, and there, yeah, I can't imagine a better place to leave it than that. Yeah, well, on that note, thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you, Mary. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation, and please, everyone, get your hands on The Gunkle, uh, both in print, the audiobook that Stephen reads, which does not happen a lot with authors reading their own work. Um, also, get your hands on The Editor and Lily and the Octopus. Uh, so Yay. thank you so much. Yeah, Stephen. I would just love to thank add you. too, yeah. there are lots of supply chain issues that are affecting lots of industries, including publishing, including uh, printing and uh, bookstores. If you are in the market for holiday uh, books that you want to give as gifts this year, order them early and support your independent bookstores if you can, because um, you know, there could be difficulty getting the titles you want at the last moment. So order now. Yes, yes. and yes. we will, the link in our show notes is directly to, um, independent bookstores. So fantastic. Use that link. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Okay, thank you we so much. We love our indie bookstores. Yay. Thank you. Okay. I'll All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. I thank them all because without their help, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room would not be what it is. Also, please do donate and help support our public humanities mission. So the easiest way to donate is go to the bottom of the show notes, click that support link, and that's your easiest way to donate. We really appreciate it because we are all volunteers here within the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Please, while you're at it, follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter page, at Ivory Boiler Room. Thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames for Loverman, the music that you heard at the opening of this episode and the music that we'll now conclude with. Hope you all are staying safe and healthy out there. <laughs>